When Harry Price published his first book, covering Borley Rectory, in 1940, he would have been well aware how sensational and potentially controversial the title would appear. The most haunted house in England shot Borley Rectory to fame, cementing the name in history with the likes of Jack the Ripper, the Salem Witch Trials, and later, the Amityville Horror. That the contents of the book stirred up so many years of controversy is an outcome that was bound to have materialised regardless of the title, with stories of spectral nuns, monks and horse-drawn carriages, ghostly writings on the walls and secret passages, all set in the spiritualist boom between the wars, tables tipped, planchettes moved, bells rang and eventually the house burnt to the ground. Eighty years later, the legend of Borley still lives on, fighting against allegations of fraud all the way. This is Dark Histories, where the facts are worse than fiction. Hello and welcome to Season 5, Episode 16 of Dark Histories. I'm Ben and I hope this episode finds you well. This episode has been a long, long, long time coming. I've always wanted to approach Borley, never quite sure how I was going to approach Borley, like sort of the angle and such. And it, I always sort of just ended up putting it off and putting it off because I knew firstly that it was going to be a, a big one. And, and secondly, that yeah, I wasn't really sure how I was going to approach it. But with the new horror film based on the Borley Rectory story, I, I thought, it's a, you know, it seems like that that's, that's a good enough time, isn't it? It's a good enough excuse to, to, to brace it and, uh, and go for it. So yeah, a couple of things I want to say before we start this episode. Firstly, obviously this episode features Harry Price heavily. If you're sort of new to Dark Histories or it's been a while since you listened to the Rosalie, the Seance of Rosalie episode, you might want to listen to that one first and get a, a grounding again in who Harry Price is because I didn't want to sort of go too much into Harry Price's backstory and sort of reintroduce him because... I did so much of that in the Seance of Rosalie episode. So yeah, it might actually be worth going back and listening to the Seance of Rosalie episode before this episode, if that makes sense, just to give you a bit of a kind of sort of a heads up as to who Harry Price actually is. But it's not essential. You, it's just a, just a bit of a heads up. I think he also appears briefly in the Joanna Southcott's box episode, but that, that, that's much more brief. But yeah, as I say, the Sounds of Rosalie episode, it might be worth listening to. I don't know. See what you think. Uh, secondly, there's going to be a live stream on the 23rd of October. And I'm looking for your stories to read out on that live stream. What I'm looking for in this live stream is I, I really want to um, focus on local folklore and uh, sort of urban legends. Uh, um, and obviously with the Dark Issues audience being so global as it is, uh, you know, I'd love to hear your local legends and your local urban sort of folklore and urban legends from your area, basically. So if you've got stories like that, write in, uh, let me know, and we'll feature them on the, the, the live stream where we'll be sort of going through urban legends and talking about local folklore and stuff. So that'd be fun. I say that that live stream is going to be on the 23rd of October. We're sort of ironing out the time at the moment on the Discord channel because obviously we've got to try and find a time that suits as many people as possible really so that we're sort of ironing the time out now but closer to the date I'll, I'll let everyone know on social media and things like that and if obviously if you're on the discord you'll you'll definitely know but yeah otherwise if you would like to get your stories in forgot to mention you can do so social at darkhistories.com is the email you want to send it to not the usual contact 
email because um, it's easier for me to not lose them in the shuffle, basically, if if they go to social at darkhistory.com. So, yeah, email them there or you can also DM me on social media and such if, if you want. But otherwise, um, yeah, that'd be great. I'd love to get your stories. It's going to be great. I've got a load already, but it would be, you know, basically just we want to get as many as we can. Um, so, yeah, if you, if you want that, that would be great. Yeah. Anyway, enough of that old twaddle. Let's move on. This is a big one. A good one for spooky season, maybe. And uh, it's called The Borley Rectory Affair. Perched just inside the northern border of Essex, the village of Borley is a tiny hamlet, so small that you could blink and drive straight past it. The handful of buildings that make up the village lie on either side of a narrow, winding road that carves through the middle, lined by trees and hedges, and divides the wide expanses of farmland and fields. The most imposing building in the area, towering over the handful of old barns and farmhouses, is the old church, originally built in the 11th century, but with 14th century renovations. It stands opposite an unassuming row of new-build red-brick cottages, quietly inset from the narrow roadside on the grounds that once housed a house named Borley Rectory. Borley Rectory was a mansion house used by the church's reverend and rector of the local parish. Records of the rectory show that it existed in at least three iterations. The oldest and most obscure was Borley Manor, a large manor house that existed as far back as original records with the 11th century doomsday book listing it amongst the possessions of Countess Adelaide of Ormal along with seven cattle, 28 pigs, 25 sheep, 24 goats and two beehives. The manor house was later traded into the possession of King Edward I, making it a royal manor until the 14th century, when it was once more transferred, this time into the hands of the Waldegrave family, a wealthy land and property owning family, patrons of the church with ties to the members of parliament who leased the house to the rector of Borley Church. The location of the manor is not locked down in stone, but a map from 1773 shows a large building on the side of the later rectory, opposite the church, which is presumed to be the old manor house. In the first quarter of the 19th century, Reverend William Herringham, rector of Borley from 1819 to 1862, built the second rectory, presumably demolishing the first. The second rectory was a reasonably modest house of cream stone that stood until 1863, when the third, final and most infamous iteration was built by the Reverend Henry Dawson Ellis Bull after he became rector in 1862. When Reverend Henry Dawson Ellis Bull became rector of Borley in 1862, one of the first tasks he oversaw was the building of a new rectory befitting of his family, with room enough not only to house himself, his wife Caroline, who he had married the same year, and their newborn son Henry, who mercifully, to avoid confusion, was better known as Harry. Over their tenancy of Borley Rectory, they would extend the wings in order to fit their 13 further children, 11 of which survived infancy. Along with their ever-growing family, the new rectory also had to be a home, with rooms large enough to accommodate the socialising expected of a 19th century rector, especially one like Bull, who relished the role of playing host to the local gentry. Herringham's rectory was promptly demolished, save for the old stable, which Henry Bull converted to use as a stable on the ground floor with cottage rooms above for his numerous service staff. 
The ball rectory was built in a typical Victorian Gothic fashion, a large L-shaped structure of two stories forming an imposing red brick facade with multiple chimneys protruding from its sloped grey slate roof. Over the next 29 years, it continued to grow in size alongside the Ball family as an entire new wing was added. The entire house eventually consisted of 20 rooms and spanning a circular footprint, complete with central courtyard. On the ground floor in the northeast corner, a large dining room housed an extravagant marble fireplace carved with the effigies of a pair of monks imported from Italy and in the southeast corner, an equally large drawing room sandwiched the library whose doors opened out onto the large veranda, nestled between large sash windows of both the dining and drawing rooms. The eastern side of the ground floor housed the expansive kitchen, pantry, dairy and scullery, all whose windows were concealed behind wrought iron bars. Eleven bedrooms sat on the upper floor, three of which were for house staff and could be reached via the back stairs behind the kitchens along with the lavatory and two bathrooms, one of which was later converted to a chapel room and decorated with a stained glass window. Grand as it was, it lacked some of the more basic amenities that were becoming standard at the time, such as gas and water. With electricity still decades off in rural areas, it made for a dimly lit interior of dark wood floors and panelling, fuelled by open fires and oil lamps, whilst water was pumped up from a deep well in the courtyard. The large grounds were surrounded by heavy shrubbery and trees, shielding much of the ground floor from view and separating the rectory from the central village road that passed by the house, on the opposite of which sat Borley Place, a somewhat more modest house, Borley Church and the attached cemetery. One of a long line of rectors, Henry Dawson Ellis Ball could boast a family tree with members of his family working as part of the clergy as far back as the 1500s. Known to be something of an eccentric, he could commonly be seen lying on the floor of the library at Borley, shooting rabbits as they ran by on the tennis lawn outside. Only wearing clerical dress when he absolutely had to, he was a stout man with large mutton chops and would probably have made for a terrifying sight as he tore through the village in his horse-drawn trap en route to a hunting shoot or amateur boxing match. During this period, the rectory would have seemed like a bustling community centre in comparison to the rest of the village, with the entire Bull family and all their house staff, grooms, gardeners, cooks and maids coming and going. Whilst difficult to pin down the exact origin of many of the ghost stories that stemmed from Borley over the years, it seems the Bull children were the first to come up with the tales befitting of their gothic surroundings. Several of the children told stories of seeing a nun who would walk through the garden and a phantom coach at times driven by a headless rider and of a woman dressed in white drifting slowly into the tree line towards the roadside. As the tales were exchanged back and forth, slowly they were expanded upon until they had their own legends. The nun was soon love-struck with a monk from a neighbouring monastery. The pair had been caught trying to elope in the back of a horse-drawn coach and punished by their elders. The nun, by being bricked up in a wall, suffocating to death, and the monk, who got away relatively lightly and was only hanged for his transgression. As expected of stories made up and traded by children, they held absolutely no basis in historical truth. 
But then, what good ghost story between siblings ever does? It wasn't just the children, however. In 1886, when Mrs. E. Byford worked at the rectory as an under-nursemaid, her position turned out to be temporary, as, after two weeks, she quit her job following a disturbed night's sleep, where she recorded hearing footsteps outside her room all night. She eventually quit after confiding with her fellow maids, who denied making the footsteps themselves, citing that the building was so weird. Mr. P. Shaw Jeffrey, a school friend of Harry's who often stayed over at the rectory during holidays, said he actually saw a nun walking through the gardens on several occasions, and on another occasion, he lost track of his French dictionary only to have it reappear with a thump onto his bedroom floor one night whilst the door was locked. Over the years, the stories seeped into the history of the rectory, entwining themselves with the landscape and melding into the story of the house. On the 2nd of May, 1892, Henry Ball died, aged 59 years old, in a bedroom upstairs at the rectory in the presence of his son, Harry. His death certificate lists the cause of death as locomotor ataxia, a loss of control and coordination brought about from tertiary syphilis, a curious disease for a rector, but one that would offer some credibility to the rumours that Henry Ball had fathered not only the 14 children of his own, but also several illegitimate children with various members of his servant staff. After Henry's death, his son Harry took over as rector, choosing to live in the house along with his sisters until he married in 1911, aged 49 years old. The marriage was much against his family's wishes, and was to a much younger woman, the 29-year-old Ivy Brackenbury. Ivy had been working as a nurse when she met Harry, and was a widow with a 10-year-old daughter from her previous marriage. After the pair's marriage, Harry, Ivy, and Ivy's daughter, Constance, moved into Borley Place, the house opposite the rectory, where they stayed until 1920, and they eventually moved back into the rectory, much to the chagrin of Harry's sisters, who were adamant that Ivy had married Harry only for his money. Harry Ball, it seems, was as equally eccentric as his father. One of only three Ball children who were not homeschooled, he was educated at Cambridge and Oxford, and was partial to a round of amateur boxing or two, much like his father. Tall and slim, he was known as a relatively flamboyant character in the village, and appears to have had at least a passing interest in spiritualism, often discussing ghosts and the other side with his parishioners, who he and Ivy socialised with at every opportunity, keen on taking part in any and all community events. He either suffered from narcolepsy, or just had a habit of falling asleep in strange places, as he would routinely miss meals and he'd be found asleep in the garden or one of the other rooms of the house, though he was, for the most part, easy to be found since he was surrounded by his cats, of which he was said to have owned upwards of 30, all of whom had individual names and followed him about the rectory incessantly. Several of the cats would wind up in a cat cemetery that Harry maintained at the bottom of the garden, complete with miniature handcrafted headstones. Flirting with spiritual beliefs, Harry continued to propagate the stories of his childhood in relation to the ghosts of the rectory, and would often tell people openly about how he watched for the ghostly apparition of the nun from the safety of a pair of circular wooden summer houses that his father had built in the garden before his death. His sisters, too, seemed to enjoy the legends that they had cooked up as children, 
one of the most famous examples being the story told by Ethel Ball, which related a sighting of the nun seen by herself and her two sisters, Mabel and Frieda, as they returned home from a party at 9pm on a warm summer's evening of June 28, 1900. As they passed through the gateway and started towards the house, all three saw the apparition of a nun dressed in black and with her head bowed, drifting through the garden along a path that had become known in the household as Nun's Walk. One of the sisters ran into the house and fetched Caroline, one of their elder sisters, who approached the figure from the house, only to see it disappear before her eyes. In later years, Ernest Ambrose, the church organist and frequent visitor to the rectory, told of how several of the Ball sisters, along with Harry, enjoyed talking about the ghosts of the rectory. The Reverend Harry Ball was rector at that period, and I got to know the family well. I began to hear about their ghost, which the family spoke about in quite matter-of-fact terms. The rector's sister seemed mostly concerned about this apparition, and when I asked them about it, they told me in quite casual terms what they had seen. They pointed out to me the path and lawn where they had seen the ghost walking, and when I asked what they felt about it, they said, Ah, we're quite used to it. It doesn't bother us at all. They also showed me a bedroom window where it appeared during the last week in July. That made me think it could be due in some way to the special position of the sun at that time. They were all very down-to-earth women, not given to exaggeration or emotionalism, nor were they inclined to search for the supernatural, but they were very convinced that they had seen an apparition on several occasions, and they just accepted this as a plain fact. They were very practical women, and if, as happened occasionally, I got a punch on my bike, one of them would mend it for me and enjoy doing it. After a relatively eventful stint as rector, Harry Ball died of cancer in 1927 in the same room of the rectory as his father. His passing marked the end of the Ball tenancy of the rectory, the sisters already having vacated the property in the years prior, making way for a new era and one of which would see the rectory reach nationwide fame. Reverend Guy Eric Smith was born in 1885 in Calcutta. The son of colonial parents, he schooled in India and was employed for a time in the Indian civil service sector. He met his wife, Mabel Hart, and the pair married in 1924, shortly after moving to England, which his wife hoped would benefit her health. He took a short stint as a clergyman in Great Clacton before he accepted the rectorship of Borley in 1928. In the years following Harry Ball's death, until Smith's acceptance, Borley Rectory had stood empty after being offered and rejected by 12 other candidates before Smith. Whether or not this was down to its reputation as a ghostly haunt, as it's often suggested, or simply because the prospect of a large, costly and inconvenient house with little access to amenities was not an altogether tantalising prospect is unknown. Either way, Guy Smith and his wife were both apparently completely unaware of the stories of ghostly nuns that the Bulls had told until after they had moved in and the locals broke the news to them. Having been accustomed to colonial life in India, one wonders what went through the pair's minds when they first laid eyes upon the rectory, imposing, damp and dark as it was, and with a leaking roof to boot. It was already a shocking proposition, made all the worse given that they moved in on the 2nd of October right at the start of what would turn out to be one of the most severe British winters of the entire century, with average temperatures floating just above one degree Celsius for several months on end. 
They quickly set about making it as hospitable as possible, installing a rudimentary water system in the attic, though the well was still the main source of water for the house. Fueled by the locals' tales of hauntings, along with the frequent visits from the Ball sisters, who were also happy to fill the Smiths in with their own take on the house's history, the Smiths quickly became concerned for the house that they had taken on. The cold, cavernous rooms and hallways, practically empty compared to when it was occupied by the Ball family and all their staff, became overbearing to manage, despite the upstairs rooms being closed off and completely unused, culminating with Reverend Smith applying for a transfer to a new position elsewhere, which was promptly denied. The Smiths employed a single live-in maid, the first of which was similarly dissatisfied with the house and quit her position after just two days following an encounter with a shadowy figure at the bottom of the garden. She was shortly after replaced by 15-year-old Mary Pearson. The truth of the matter was that the stories floating around the village concerning the rectory and the physical state of the house were not the only thing playing on the Smiths' minds. Ghostly whisperings echoed around the empty hallways. The service bells rang continuously despite no one being around to pull the cables, so much so that Reverend Smith eventually cut several to stop the possibility of them being rung at all. Mabel Smith had begun hearing footsteps outside her bedroom every night, and topping it all off, the skull of a woman had been found in a cupboard in the library, wrapped in brown parcel paper. The skull had, in fact, been sent to Harry Ball during his rectorship for reinterment in the churchyard, but had been put to one side and forgotten. Reverend Smith eventually finished the job, burying it in the churchyard opposite the rectory, but for Mabel, who had already been suffering from nerves, the damage was already done. Throughout the winter, Mabel would see various rooms in the rectory lit up as if in use, either from the windows outside or through the cracks under the doors, only to find them dark and empty when she went to check them. She also recorded seeing the phantom coach drawn by two horses on two occasions, first as a pair of dim oil lamps parked in the rectory driveway and the second time going down the garden, seemingly with no driver at the helm. By the spring of 1929, the warmer weather and longer days would have been quite welcomed by the Smiths, who were, by now, looking for answers. Their solution would turn out to be a fateful one and would pitch Borley Rectory onto the paranormal map for decades to come. With Mabel Smith's nerves failing and Reverend Smith himself not faring any better, the Reverend took it upon himself in June of 1929 to write to the Daily Mirror, a daily national tabloid newspaper, in order to inquire after an introduction to the Society for Psychical Research, who he hoped might be able to offer some reassurance and put an end to the rumours of the ghostly goings-on in the house. It was a fairly naive move in retrospect as the newspaper, sensing a story, instead sent a reporter, Vernon Wall, to write up a piece for the paper. Published on 10th of June 1929, it was a sensationalist piece full of misinformation and historical guff, but it sure made for a good story. Ghost visits to a rectory, tales of headless coachmen and a lonely nun, mysterious happenings on site of old monastery, ghostly figures of headless coachmen and a nun, an old-time coach drawn by two bay horses which appears and vanishes mysteriously and dragging footsteps in empty rooms. All these ingredients of a first-class ghost story 
are awaiting investigation by psychic experts near Long Melford in Suffolk. The scene of the ghostly visitations is the rectory at Borley, a few miles from Long Melford. It is a building erected on the part of the site of a great monastery, which, in the Middle Ages, was the scene of a gruesome tragedy. The piece then goes on to regale a version of the monk and the nun, one beheaded and the other bricked up in a wall, much embellished for the sake of good copy, of course. This piece on the 10th of June was the first, in fact, in a week-long series of articles all on the rectory, with the next, published on Tuesday the 11th of June, speaking of the lights seen in the rectory's windows by Mabel Smith and of a not-so-ghostly apparition seen by Vernon Wall in the woods behind the building. Queer rustling noises, the sighting, the sigh, queer rustling noises, the sighing of the wind in the trees, the swish of disturbed dead leaves, all worked on our frayed nerves. Then we had a terrible shock. Staring at a clump of trees, I distinctly saw a white figure flitting about in the gloom. Seizing my companion's arm, and wondering whether I should run forward or back, I stared at the apparition while the photographer fanatically attempted to focus his camera, let off a flashlight, throw off my detaining hand, and erect his tripod all at once. He failed miserably, but by the time that he had disentangled himself from the legs of his tripod and picked up scattered pieces of the camera, I had seen the joke. For the apparition was the rectory maid coming to ask if we would like coffee. Then, when the maid had gone, stillness again, until after having examined numerous tree stumps which looked at a distance rather like nuns, we decided to abandon the vigil. The editor also contacted Harry Price, who he knew from previous psychical cases that the paper had reported on. Price, who at the time held a position of foreign resident for the American Society for Psychical Research and was loosely affiliated with the University of London, had had a long career in uncovering fraudulent mediums after forming his National Laboratory of Psychical Research in 1925 as a direct rival to the Society of Psychical Research. Having already read the first two pieces on the rectory, Price jumped at the chance to get involved and he contacted Reverend Smith to organise a visit the very next day. On the following morning, Wednesday, June the 12th, Harry Price, along with his secretary, Lucy Kay, made the 70-mile journey from London to Borley for a lunch meeting with the Smiths, who filled him in on their story with the rectory so far. After lunch, Price spent the day taking various measurements of each broom in the house in an extensive tour, retiring to one of the summer houses in the garden for an evening stakeout of the Nun's Walk, alongside Mr Wall, the Daymira journalist. As Price was sleepily staring towards the rectory, watching for the phantom lights at the windows, Wall grabbed his arm, pointed towards the bottom of the garden and shot off across the grass, exclaiming, There she is! It was nearly dark, but against the darker background of the trees, I fancied I could discern a shadowy figure, blacker than the background, gliding across the end of the garden and the little stream. I was not certain. Mr Wall's perspective was, of course, published the following day in the 14th June edition of the Daily Mirror, for all of the nation to read amongst what can be best described as a flurry of phenomena that continued for the rest of the night, culminating in an informal midnight seance held by Harry Price in one of the upstairs bedrooms known as the Blue Room. Weird night in haunted house. There can no longer be any doubt that Borley Rectory, near here, is the scene of some remarkable incidents. Last night, Mr Harry Price 
Director of the National Laboratory for Psychical Research, his secretary, Miss Lucy Kay, the Reverend G.E. Smith, Rector of Borley, and myself were witnesses to a series of remarkable happenings. The first remarkable happening was the dark figure I saw in the garden. We were standing in the summer house at dusk watching the lawn when I saw the apparition, which so many claim to have seen, but owing to the deep shadows, it was impossible for one to discern any definite shape or attire. But something certainly moved along the path on the other side of the lawn, and although I immediately ran across to investigate, it had vanished when I reached the spot. Then we strolled towards the rectory discussing the figure. There came a terrific crash, and a pane of glass from the roof of a porch hurtled to the ground. We ran inside and upstairs to inspect the rooms immediately over the porch, but found nobody. A few seconds later, we were descending the stairs, Mrs. Kay leading, and Mr. Price behind me, when something flew past my head, hit an iron stove in the hall, and shattered. Without flash lamps, we inspected the broken pieces, and found them to be sections of a red vase, which, with its companion, had been standing on the mantelpiece of what is known as the Blue Room, and of which we had just searched. Finally came the most astonishing event of the night. From one o'clock until nearly four this morning, all of us, including the rector and his wife, actually questioned the spirit or whatever it was and received at times the most emphatic answers. Our questions, which we asked out loud, were answered by raps, apparently made on the back of a mirror in the room, and it must be remembered that no medium or spiritualist was present. Though it was not mentioned in the newspaper article, the group were also joined by Ethel and Adelaide Bull. Using a typical three taps for yes and two for unsure and one tap for no system, it was discerned that the spirit in communication with the group was that of previous rector Harry Bull, who admitted to making the sound of the footsteps throughout the nights at Borley and, rather disturbingly, told them that he had been murdered by his wife, Ivy, in order that she get her hands on his inheritance. It was quite the end to an exciting day at the rectory, perhaps less so for the Smiths, who were seeking assurance rather than escalation, but it was absolutely exciting for Price, who, like Wall, dived headlong into an investigation of the house. Over the next two days, Price visited the Bull sisters and interviewed them concerning their time growing up at the rectory, as well as meeting with some of the old service staff. Two days later, he returned to the house itself, but, much to his dismay, had very little excitement to tell of. The service bells inexplicably rang out throughout the hallways at times, but nothing else was deemed worthy of any note. After the newspaper ran its final piece on Borley, the hype generated within the public was such that cars and coaches filled the narrow lane outside the house. Hordes of spectators, all keen on seeing the shadowy figure for themselves, descended upon the tiny hamlet. For the Smiths, it was all a bit much to take, and even after the initial excitement died down, they found that they had opened a can of worms and could no longer put the lid back on. On the 14th of July, they moved out of the rectory to the nearby village of Long Melford, running the parish duties from there until April of 1930, when Reverend Smith gave his last sermon at Borley Church and moved out of the area for good. From the Smith's departure in June of 1929 until September 1930, Borley Rectory sat empty. In October of 1930, however, the position of rector was eventually taken by Reverend Lionel Algernon Foister, 
a distant cousin of the Ball family who had once stayed at the house for a brief holiday in 1924. Ethel Ball contacted him whilst he was in Canada with his wife, Marianne, where they were carrying out missionary duties for the church and asked him if he would be interested in the position, which he duly accepted and returned to the UK, staying with the Balls from September, whilst a series of renovations and improvements were carried out on the rectory in readiness for its new occupants. Lionel Foister had followed in his father's footsteps by joining the church and was ordained as a minister in 1904 at the age of 26. He was educated at Cambridge, gaining a bachelor's and master's degree before leaving the UK in 1910 in order to work as a missionary in Canada. During his time abroad, he kept in touch with his old friends in England, especially the daughter of the Shaws, two members of his old parish who he invited out to Canada in 1922 and promptly married. Despite Marianne being 21 years Lionel's junior, she had already previously married at the age of 15 and given birth to a son. However, her husband deserted her shortly after the birth, leaving the son to be raised by Marianne's parents. The pair started a new life together in Canada and adopted Adelaide following the death of her parents. Their family life was progressing well, however, by 1929 their finances and health were suffering. Lionel had been struggling with rheumatoid arthritis for some time and was forced to walk with a stick, whilst Marianne suffered from stomach problems that required an operation. The Wall Street crash of 1929 effectively wiped out the family's savings, and so, when they were offered a return to England to take on the rectorship of Borley, they were happy to accept. Lionel, Marianne and their three-year-old adopted daughter Adelaide finally moved into the rectory on the 16th of October 1930. As quick as the explosive Daily Mirror articles had shot Borley to national fame, the general public interest had died back down again. Though throughout the first years of the Foister's residency at the rectory, groups of spiritualists and other interested parties routinely appeared, hoping to investigate the property, hold seances or deliver the house from evil. The national newspapers may have moved on, but for the Foisters, who were aware of the house's reputation before they had moved in, quickly discovered what life was like in a haunted house. In fact, for the first year and a half, it seemed like paranormal phenomena at the rectory was at its absolute peak. Within days of the new tenants moving in, Marianne began hearing her name whispered in the corridors by an unseen speaker, and the usual footsteps were back in the halls, shuffling around throughout the night. On their seventh day in the house, Marianne actually claimed to see an apparition of Harry Ball on the main staircase, recognising him from when she had stayed in the house on holiday with Lionel in 1924. Throughout the household, various small items seemed to disappear and then reappear days or even weeks later, in rooms far from where the Foisters remember last seeing them. Strange smells were said to have permeated throughout the rooms of the house, lavender being a common scent as well as other sweet-smelling incense and perfumes. Curiously, this particular phenomena has always been attributed to something paranormal or unexplained by Lionel Foister, as well as various psychical researchers, mediums, and the authors of several books on the rectory, rather than the far more obvious explanation that the scent wafted in from Stafford Allens and Sons Limited, a nearby factory on the outskirts of the village of Liston, less than a mile and a half away, founded as a drug manufacturer in 1899, but later diversifying into a full-blown chemicals and essences farm and manufacturing plant. 
The farm side of the business maintained fields of lavender, saffron, belladonna, digitalis, licorice and peppermint for use in its commercial scents, essential oils and flavourings. Without a doubt, the fields themselves would have put out a significant volume of scent, and that's before we even consider the output as the plants were processed in the factory. As likely as this is as an explanation, somewhat less explainable was the small material bag of lavender that appeared on top of the mantelpiece, apparently from nowhere. Despite the absurdity of the perfume story, and even if we discount it entirely, the rectory was, by the spring of 1931, proving to be a very difficult place to live for the foisters, with objects being routinely thrown at both Lionel and Marianne almost daily. From the beginning of the events, Lionel had begun keeping a diary of anything he found strange going on throughout the house, and it quickly filled up with entries of mysterious bell ringing, phantom footsteps and disappearing objects. In fact, one reads the diary and is left with a sense that the house was, perhaps, consuming the rector, as every tiny event that could be categorised as remotely out of place or unexplainable was instantly written up into the diary and, by extension, attributed to something otherworldly. In March, the Foisters took on a lodger, a man named Frank Peerless, though he liked to be known, inexplicably, as Francois Darlay, despite being born in Bermondsey in London and being most assuredly not French. Frank had a young son, Douglas, and had advertised for lodging in the newspaper. Marianne replied to the advert, offering the cottage opposite the rectory, hoping that Douglas and Adelaide could play together and keep one another company. Not long after Frank had moved in, Marianne and Frank began having an affair. Her relationship with Lionel had always been emotionally satisfying, but sexually completely barren, and she found Frank the perfect resolution to the problem, despite not actually liking him very much. Over the following months, events continued in much the same vein. But it was in May that things seemed to step up a gear when Marianne discovered a scrap of paper floating through the air in the kitchen. Snatching the paper from the ground where it fell, she found that her name had been scribbled on it in what was described as a childish hand. Over the following days, Marianne found several of the scraps throughout the house, each with identical scrawled handwriting. Perhaps even more strangely, the same scrawled, joined-up calligraphy began to appear on the walls throughout the rectory, written in pencil and appearing almost as if they had been scrawled by someone using their weak hand. The messages were obscure and confusing, leaving fragmented clips of sentences such as Marianne, please help get, and perhaps most famously, an exchange between Marianne and the wall writer when she replied to a message that appeared to be asking for help by writing, I cannot understand, tell me more. After Marianne wrote the message, her name later appeared beneath, followed by another scrawled attempt at a sentence that has been translated as light in prayer, though several of the words between were entirely indecipherable. During the spring, several groups of spiritualists and psychical researchers visited the rectory. Alarmingly for Marianne, almost all came away from the rectory with the conclusion that the activity was being faked by Marianne herself. This included Harry Price, who came to the rectory in October of 1931. Price had kept in touch with the Bull sisters, who had kept him informed of the goings-on at the rectory, and in October, 
After communicating with Lionel and reading through a copy of the diary of events that he had been keeping, Harry Price arranged a visit to return to the house. Prior to his arrival, William Salter of the Society for Psychical Research paid a visit to Foister and warned him against Price's visit, suggesting that he enforce a disclaimer upon Price to avoid any publicity. Over two days in October, Price and a small group of spiritualist confidants, Mrs. Kathleen Goldney and Mrs. Henry Richards, witnessed a series of unexplainable events, including the wine which was poured over dinner turning to ink in their glasses, which proved to be too much for Marianne, who soon after retired to bed. That night, the servants' bells rang incessantly. Items were thrown and smashed against the floors of the rectory. The chauffeur, James Ballantyne, who had driven the group from London to Essex that night, saw a disembodied hand move up and down the kitchen door whilst he sat reading, and Marianne became inexplicably locked inside her bedroom. Lionel miraculously unlocked the door by placing a small statue of the Curé d'Ar by the door, kneeling down and praying, whilst his wife did exactly the same on her side of the door. That night, back at their inn, Price, Richards and Goldney discussed the day's events, coming to the conclusion that much of the phenomena that they had witnessed that night could have been instigated by Marianne Foister. The following morning, Price broke this delicate news to Lionel, who, alongside Marianne, denied that she was involved in any way at all. Although the Reverend invited Price to stay another night, hoping he could further prove his wife was not carrying out a series of tricks, it was an accusation that stained the relationship between the Foisters and Harry Price for good. Years later, when speaking about Price, Marianne would call him bombastic and horrid. That night, after Harry Price had satisfied he had the house under his control as much as possible, they held a second vigil. However, were only presented with the singular event of bell ringing before they gave up and returned to London. Price was suspicious of Marianne Foister, just as every other investigator on the premises from the previous six months had been. However, he did have his suspicions rocked when he interviewed Lady Whitehouse, a friend of the Foisters who had herself visited the property and seen the events and was entirely insistent that the phenomena she had witnessed could not possibly have been carried out by Marianne, whose health, she said, had been suffering from the stress of the events and had spent at least one evening when an unexplained phenomena had taken place confined to her bed through illness. The White House family eventually invited the Foisters to stay with them for a time, just in order to give them a break from the rectory. Following Price's visits in October, the Foisters became more reclusive and less inclined to allow any investigators onto the rectory grounds. Marianne was especially tired of being accused of faking so much of the phenomenon they were experiencing. They did give in somewhat hesitatingly, however, after Lionel was approached in January of 1932 by a local spiritualist circle from Mark's Tay in Essex, who offered to put an end to the strange goings-on in the house by cleansing it of any spirit that may have been hanging around. The Mark's Tay circle was run by Mr and Mrs Warren, who owned the village shop in the village of Mark's Tay and held seances in the back room after hours, led by Guy Lestrange, a prominent town councillor and part-time spiritualist medium. Following a night of activity, including glass bottles being thrown by unseen forces, bell ringing and a shadowy figure seen dissolving into a doorway, the group went from room to room, praying and blessing each one systematically until 5am in the morning, 
finally proclaiming to Lionel and Marianne that the house was now put to rest. Whether or not they had any real effect is unknown. However, Lionel himself later said that after they left, the whole house changed and became more or less normal. Those more sceptical of Marianne's involvement might also point to the fact that following the visit of the Marks Tay Circle, Marianne began staying from Monday to Friday in Wimbledon with the lodger that she was having an affair with, Frank Peerless, who had started a small business of florist in partnership with Lionel Foister, helping to bankroll the venture using the last of his meagre finances. Marianne eventually returned to the rectory after Peerless shut up shop suddenly, running off with the 16-year-old assistant. Following the violent and turbulent early years of the Foister incumbency, the rectory stood more or less quiet until 1935, when poor health eventually saw Lionel collapse in the pulpit, becoming bound to a wheelchair and taking an enforced vacation in a nursing home in Long Melford before retiring from the position of rector in October 1935. Following Reverend Lionel Foister's retirement, Borley Rectory stood abandoned once more, locked up and empty. The position for rector was filled in March of 1936 by Reverend Alfred Clifford Henning. However, he moved into the cottage opposite the rectory with his family until September when the parish of Borley and Liston were combined, and with the family moving into Liston Rectory shortly after. Meanwhile, Borley Rectory was placed up for sale. By now the church had decided it was no longer fit for a modern family, being too large, too expensive to run and too difficult to manage. The sensational attention it received in the newspapers whenever it was mentioned didn't help the house's cause much either. After it was placed on the market, Harry Price made some inquiries into purchasing it for a bargain price hoping to use it as part of a prolonged investigation into the psychical events that had happened there, or as part of what he called a psychical trust, which would be sort of a retreat for retired spirit mediums and other spiritualist sympathisers. Eventually, the cost to renovate the old building, that was at this point suffering from some fairly severe disrepair, made the venture cost prohibitive. Price instead inquired about renting the property on a longer term lease, which would at least allow him to hold a significant investigation on the property using investigators independent of its previous occupants. After some back and forth with Reverend Henning, who agreed to rent in the rectory for £30 a year, Price became the first lay tenant of the rectory in its history. The price was an absolute steal when one considers the average rental price for a London apartment at the time was anything from £100 to £320 per year. Price immediately began putting his plan into action, placing an advert for independent persons to apply for a position on his team of investigators on a voluntary basis, published in the Times newspaper, May 23, 1937. Haunted House Responsible persons of leisure, intelligence, intrepid, critical and unbiased are invited to join rota of observers in a year, night and day investigation of alleged haunted house in home counties. Printed instructions supplied. Scientific training or the ability to operate simple instruments and vantage. House situated in lonely hamlet, so own car is essential. Write box H989, The Times, EC4. The printed instructions that were mentioned was a peculiar list of instructions on behaviour during the investigation 
as well as items of equipment needed and duties one was expected to carry out, which Price named the Blue Book on account of its plain blue authoritarian front cover. Number one. Attend carefully to all written and verbal instructions and carry out to the letter. Number two. Each observer should provide himself with the following articles in addition to night clothes, etc. Note block, pencils, good watch with seconds hand, candle and matches, pocket electric torch, brandy flask, sandwiches, etc. If he possesses a camera, this can be used. Rubber or felt-soled shoes should be worn. In total, there were 20 items in the list, as well as two further pages with advice on how to react to various phenomena. Forms of apparitions. If seen, do not move and on no account approach the figure. Note exact method of appearance. Observe figure carefully. Watch all movements, rate and manner of progression, etc. Note duration of appearance, colour, form, size, how dressed and whether solid or transparent. If carrying camera with film ready for exposing, quietly snap the figure, but make no sound and do not move. If figure speaks, do not approach, but ascertain name, age, sex, origin, cause of visit, if in trouble, and possible alleviation. Inquire if it is a spirit. Ask figure to return, suggest an exact time and place. Do not move until figure disappears. Note exact method of vanishing. If through an open door, quietly follow. If through solid object, such as wall, ascertain if still visible on other side. Make the very fullest notes of the incident. The nun is alleged to walk regularly along the nun's walk in the grounds. Quite right Price was so adamant on getting independent investigators unaware of the history of Borley, if he was then going to tell them the entire history anyway in his blue book, is anyone's guess. Still, at least they knew to not move if confronted with a ghost. The leaflet was topped off with an important note. Although some or all of the above phenomena may be observed, it is very important that the greatest effort should be made to ascertain whether such manifestations are due to normal causes such as rats, small boys, the villagers, the wind, wood shrinking, the death watch beetle, farm animals nosing the doors, etc. Trees brushing against the windows, birds in the chimney stack, or between double walls, etc. After the advert was published, Price received over 200 applications, which he whittled down to 48, who were considered appropriate for the job. They ranged from military men and high society to journalists, mediums, charwomen and doctors. Those that were selected were made to sign a contract that Price himself admitted was not worth the paper it was written on, but it essentially acted as a non-disclosure agreement, forbidding those that were to take part to write, publish, or hold any lectures disclosing any information about the house and the investigation, nor were they allowed to publish any photos without permission from Price. A keen self-publicist, Price was not silly enough to allow anyone else a piece of the Borley investigation pie. Before the investigation started, he converted the library into a base room, complete with various cooking utensils, gas lamps, a large wooden dining table and a camp bed. That June, the investigators started their overnight visuals. One investigator, Sidney Glanville, 
spent his earliest shifts taking measurements of the rooms and making meticulous floor plans of the entire rectory. For the first several months, the investigators sent reports into Price documenting hundreds of events, much along the same lines as previously experienced, from bell ringing and footsteps to small items moving around. But in October, Sydney and Roger Glanville, Alan Cuthbert and Mark Herpiers decided to take things a little further by holding a seance and attempting to communicate with whatever spirits were supposedly left in the rectory. During eight seances over a 48-hour period, they were contacted by spirits claiming to be both Henry and Harry Ball, as well as Henry's wife Caroline, with all three making claims of various historical poisonings, including a servant girl being poisoned by Henry and Harry having been poisoned by his wife. In many cases, the seances progressed into a state of gibberish until they were abandoned. One particularly interesting table-tipping session was carried out in the hallway outside the blue room and gave quite a detailed description of both the identity of the ghostly nun, whose name was apparently Mary Lair, who had died on May 17th, 1667, having come to England from a French convent in Burrs. Her remains were, the planchette spelt out for them, buried in a shallow grave in the southwest corner of the garden of the rectory near to the house, underneath a fir tree, and she appeared to be requesting a proper Christian burial, complete with holy water and incense. A further seance, held a few days later, confirmed the story, this time detailing a second set of remains of a monk named Father Enoch, who was also, apparently, buried in the garden. Though Price documented that he found these results very interesting, he goes on to say in his first book on Borley, The Most Haunted House in England, that they contained nothing that can be easily proved or disproved, which was a remarkable conclusion to arrive at, as it seems a small amount of work with a shovel could have gone quite a long way to do exactly that. Still, Price was happy to leave the digging to one side for now, which was probably for the best, as no records of a French nun named Mary Lair have ever been found, despite Price inventing a backstory for her in an interview years later. For the remainder of the months that Price rented the rectory, the observers and investigators instead amassed vast amounts of documented evidence on a series of minor events that Eric Dingwall, a somewhat eccentric member of the Society for Psychical Research, would later call in his report on the Borley investigation, so slender as to be scientifically worthless. One further seance was held, this time away from the rectory itself, in the home of the Glanvilles, by Helen and Roger Glanville in March of 1938. During this seance, a spirit going by the name of Sunex Amure was said to have spoken through a planchette, spelling out words on a crudely made, temporary Rigi-style device made from white paper on a tabletop. Sunex Amures and one of his men mean to burn the rectory tonight at 9 o'clock. End of the haunting. Go to the rectory and you will be able to see us enter into our own and under the ruins you will find bone of murdered wardens. Under the ruins mean you have proof of haunting of the rectory. At Borley, the understanding of which tells the story of murder which happened there. It was a peculiar and mixed message, and despite its apparent urgency, none of the Glanvilles travelled to Borley to check to see if the prophetic nature would be fulfilled. This turned out to be a shrewd use of fuel, as no fire burnt the rectory down that night after all. After Price's tenancy was over, 
and the investigators all thanked for their time and sent on their way, the rectory was sold by the church commissioners to Captain William Hart Gregson, a retired captain of the Royal Engineers, for a fee of £500. It was, it turned out, to be a fateful sale of the rectory. Captain Gregson moved into the house along with his two sons, Alan and Anthony Gregson, on the 16th of December 1938. Like every resident before him, the captain confessed to having heard phantom footsteps throughout the nights at the rectory. Two and a half months after taking ownership of the property, however, a fire, originating from a gas lamp, being knocked over by a stack of books toppling over in a hallway of the building, burned the entire place to the ground on midnight of 27th of February 1939. The emergency services were called and the fire department doused the flames with water from a nearby duck pond until morning. By the time the embers were fading into an ashen grey, Borley Rectory was a mere shell, its ruins a blackened corpse striking into the cold February morning skyline. Gregson filed an insurance claim on the house for a total of £7,356, which was promptly rejected on the grounds that there was significant suspicion that Captain Gregson had started the fire himself. The entire affair was settled out of court for a much smaller sum. Far from being the end of the ghosts of Borley, however, it was just the beginning. Following the destruction of Borley Rectory, Harry Price published his first book on the house detailing his tenancy and investigation in 1940, titling the book The Most Haunted House in England. It was met with renewed excitement by the public as Borley was shot to international fame with newspapers reviewing it almost wholly on positive terms. Not only did the book detail the hauntings from the balls, including the story of the love-struck nun and monk, but also the story of Sunex Amuri's seance, who many were now claiming had been prophetic after all. It may not have been on the night the seance had said, but the house had eventually burnt down. Gregson quickly found himself able to charge the flocks of ghost hunters who queued up in the road outside the ruin to spend the night poking about the carcass of the house, its exterior walls which were left standing, hoping to see the ghostly nun or the phantom coach. It was a strange way to get there, but ultimately, it was exactly the situation that Gregson had hoped for when he bought the house. In later years, information came to light through his sons who told a story that their father had bought the house with full intention to exploit the ghostly reputation and to make money on it from investigators wishing to spend time in the house. When it became apparent this wasn't going to pan out quite as he had planned, he torched the place hoping to cash in on the insurance instead. Now with the building in ruins, the house was finding renewed interest and the haunted amusement became something of a reality, though the profits were probably not what Gregson had initially hoped at least until the locals removed signposts to the small hamlet in hopes of deterring the flocks of tourists that crammed themselves into the village and clambered over the churchyard in the dark. The burning of the rectory, however, was not the end of Harry Price's involvement with the property. In November of 1942, he made inquiries into the possibility of excavating on the site of the ruins in the hopes of finding proof of Mary Lair, the non-existent nun, but due to the war effort, manpower proved too hard to come by as most able-bodied men were fighting abroad or giving all of their spare time to activities in the home guard. The situation didn't improve at all until, 
Eventually, Reverend Alfred Henning, whom Price had been attempting to organise the dig through, invited him to stay at Liston Rectory whilst he and his gardener carried out the excavation under Price's supervision. It was not quite what Price had planned for, but it was enough to get the work underway. On the 17th and 18th of August, Price began his excavation of the rectory alongside Alfred Henning, Dr. Eric Bailey, a senior assistant pathologist from Staines County Hospital, and his brother, Roland Bailey, a barrister. Also present were historian Georgina Dawson and Price's old secretary, Mrs. Ethel English, who would act as note-taker. It was a quiet start to the day, with little being discovered, but a few articles of old, discarded junk, until 2pm, when rather more excitingly, a piece of jawbone, complete with five attached teeth and a fragment of skull were uncovered, both of which were promptly handed to Dr Bailey, who analysed them on the spot and confirmed them to be of human origin, with the jawbone at least to have belonged to a woman. The skull fragment was impossible to identify any further, but given its proximity to the jawbone, it was concluded that it was most likely from the same remains, and therefore also from a female. Later, Price sent the bones off for analysis, which largely returned the same conclusion, adding that the age of the owner would have been around 30 years old. The following day, digging recommenced, but was largely fruitless and only uncovered two small medallions, which Price later prescribed to be of Italian origin and likely lost during the construction of the rectory perhaps by the men who had installed the Italian marble fireplace. A third day of digging took place two weeks later, on the 30th of August, but was likewise fruitless. In 1945, the fragments of bone excavated during Price's digs were buried in Liston Churchyard under the supervision of Reverend Alfred Henning, attempted by Henning's wife and son, Harry Price, and local photographer Eric Calcraft. Much of the events were written up and published in Price's second book on Borley Rectory, published in 1946, The End of Borley Rectory, which once again kicked off a spate of Borley fever, despite the fact that by the time of publication, the ruins of Borley had been demolished and the burnt old brickwork cleared. By now, Price had made the conclusion that the bones of Mary Lair, the intensely enigmatic French nun, had been uncovered and finally laid to rest. Two years later, Price died of a heart attack in his Sussex home on 29th of March 1948. At the time of his death, he was working on a third book concerning Borley, which was never completed nor published. After Harry Price's death in 1948, interest in Borley Rectory continued to grow. Price's books on the subject continued to sell and were reprinted several times in the years immediately after publication. There were, however, no small amount of detractors from Price's conclusions and a slew of criticism began to rise against the story, starting almost immediately after Price's death when Charles Sutton, journalist for the Daily Mail who had accompanied Price to the rectory in July of 1929, published an article in the Inky Way Annual in December of 1948 that detailed some of his experiences as a journalist, including his visit to Borley. Many things happened the night I spent in the famous Borley Rectory with Harry Price and one of his colleagues, including one uncomfortable moment when a large pebble hit me on the head. After much noisy phenomena, I seized Harry and found his pockets full of bricks and pebbles. This was one phenomenon he could not explain, so I rushed to the nearest village to phone the Daily Mirror with my story, but after a conference with the lawyer, my story was killed. 
The news editor said, bad luck, old man, but there were two of them and only one of you. Perhaps the most famous of detractors were the Society for Psychical Research, who carried out their own investigation and published a report in 1956 that was highly critical of Price's involvement with the haunting. The Borley Report, as it came to be known, levied heavy criticism on Price's methods and only stopped fractionally short of accusing him of planting the human remains at the site of the dig in order to bolster his story of the French nun Marie Lair. As Price's fame grew, so did the desire of others to share in observing the marvels he described increase. With the founding of his national laboratory, he gathered around himself a number of scientific men who were interested in parapsychology. These were permitted to attend some of the seances and so provide publicity for Price and for the newspapermen with whom he was deservedly popular. It is possible to regard Price as a brilliant, if cynical, journalist who used the material gathered either in his laboratory or in the field in such a way that its publicity value was highest. As we have seen, if the material lacks sensational elements, it would seem that he was prepared at times to provide these himself. On the other hand, his motives may have been more complex. He may have thought that there was some genuine basis on which to build his stories, and that, by supplying what he thought to be the proper psychological melee, the genuine elements could more easily emerge. To state, as we have done, that his work is wanting from the point of view of serious research, and that, by his love of publicity and his temperamental deficiencies, he failed to achieve lasting results, such as few can have had the luck and responsibility of approaching, leaves unsaid those things for which he deserves credit. With all that can be said against him, it must be admitted that it was he who, since Lodge, put psychological research on the map for the man in the English street. But was it the right map? Sir Albion Richardson stated that Borley Rectory stands by itself in the literature of psychical research. Perhaps we may say that, fairly well acquainted as we are with that literature, we are inclined to doubt it. It is certainly, as Sir Albion said, a fascinating chapter in the history of psychical research, but its fascination is hardly the kind of which Sir Albion was alluding. Then there are the accusations that several of the residents of Borley were in less than stellar health at the time of the original investigations. Henry Ball, who had apparently died of tertiary syphilis, would almost certainly have suffered from some level of dementia or other cognitive deterioration as a result. His son Harry was almost certainly a devout believer and experiencer, but in the very least showed sympathies with spiritualist beliefs and potentially suffered from narcolepsy, meaning that there was a high likelihood that he experienced hypnagogic hallucinations and the possibility certainly can't be entirely ruled out. The Foisters in particular are both branded with the possibility that poor mental stability caused by the stress of their financial and emotional situation played a large role in the voluminous events that happened in their short tenure at the rectory. In reality, the whole saga of Borley Rectory has to, in many ways, be separated into at least two halves, the period of time before Price's involvement and the period after Price became involved. The former is a much simpler area of study, with a series of characters who seemed fairly convinced that the site was host to numerous unexplainable phenomena and who propagated the story through oral history. Once Harry Price began his investigations, the whole story gets far muddier 
as it becomes impossible to study without taking into account price and his incessant hunger for publicity, a feature of his character much maligned by many of those that surrounded him and which ultimately colours a significant amount of the work detailing this area of the rectory's history. Even for the most ardent supporters of Price, it becomes clear that he was the instigator of several frauds throughout his involvement, one of the most obvious being a photo of a poltergeist projectile which was taken by photographer for the American magazine Life, David Sherman, when he visited the site of the demolition with Price in 1944. The photo appears to show a brick floating in mid-air and was published by Price in The End of Borley Rectory as evidence of paranormal phenomena, despite the fact it was simply a brick tossed over the shoulder of a workman who was busy pulling down the building just out of the frame of the camera. The entire backstory surrounding Mary Lair, the nun that seems to not exist, seems as likely to have been a figment of Price's imagination, invented to stir up public imagination as much as anything else. Despite this, the early stories surrounding the ghostly visage of the nun, drifting through the gardens of the rectory along with the phantom coach, are numerous and hold tens, if not hundreds of witnesses happy to retell their own experiences. So too the reports of ghostly whisperings and footsteps, or the mysterious ringing of bells in the corridors on a lonely night in the near-abandoned building. Controversial from the very outset, the story of Borley Rectory is a long, winding one, and one which is unlikely to find any definite resolution any time soon. Over 70 years after the building burnt to the ground, books are still being published and revelations are still being made that seem to confirm the story for both the sceptics and the believers. Perhaps not the most haunted house in England, whichever side of the fence you fall on, the story of Borley is a complex, tightly bound ball of intrigue which sits comfortably amongst the most famous hauntings in history. So that was the story of Borley Rectory. I hope you enjoyed it. It's really an interesting, fascinating piece of supernatural ghost history. And it has a, a really mucky story, um, but it's fascinating all the same. So, yeah, we'll talk a little bit about that after these short advert breaks. Forbidden history, grisly ghosts, monstrous cryptids and harrowing folklore dominate Japan's history and culture. Mysterious Japan is a bi-weekly podcast presenting these spine-chilling horror stories, urban legends, and unbelievable histories in a campfire story format. Many of these tales have never been presented in English before. Our journey takes place where dark history and supernatural folklore collide. Mysterious Japan is produced, written, and translated by recognized Japan expert Dr. Heath Avey. Season 1 relates the unbelievable legends and ghost stories from the so-called suicide forest. Listen to Mysterious Japan for free on Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at our website at themysteriousjapan.com and be transported by unbelievable stories where the lines between reality and folklore become blurred in the shadowlands of Japan. Once again, that's themysteriousjapan.com. I would like to introduce to you an artist who is a long-term friend of Dark Histories, named Doodle Kev. 
Doodle Kev is a, an artist that I came across on Instagram uh, quite a while back, and he's a, a, a full-time artist, um, and he, 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 he draws in this fascinating way. He utilises um, what he calls stippling, or I guess what's called stippling, to create black and white illustrations. What that basically means is a series of thousands of tiny little dots on a page, and uh, he, he draws these illustrations that are all inspired by horror and folklore. He's done illustrations of Bigfoot and various mythical creatures and sort of famous witches and, and, and um, things like this. And they're all really great. And uh, and I've got a couple of pieces of his work myself. I've got a, a, a commission um, of the Dark History's Butterfly that was done by him. It's, it's just absolutely beautiful. You might have seen it on my Instagram. A T-shirt by him as well, which is just uh, really great. That's uh, of uh, Vinegar Tom from uh, one of the old witch episodes. Um and it's a lot of stuff like that and it's just great you can find him on tiktok and instagram by searching for just just search basically doodle kev which is d-o-o-d-l-e-k-e-v or you can check out his shop over at doodlekev.bigcartel.com where he sells like uh, prints and stickers and t-shirts and such like that and you can also get um, in touch with him through those channels and ask him to do uh, commissions of like one-off pieces and stuff as well and he did ask me to mention as well that if you do pick up something from the shop to let him know in the notes section before that you heard it from the podcast um, because he'll give listeners of Dark Histories a bit of a kind of a few extra freebies here and there so basically yeah just just say like in the notes section of your order if you if you do decide to order anything yeah that, that you're heard about it from dark histories and he'll chuck in some extra stickers and stuff like that so that that's really cool of him and, and really nice of him to to do that and yeah i mean um check out his artwork say um i found him on instagram but he say he's on tiktok and instagram named doodle kev d-o-o-d-l-e-k-e-v um say or go check out his shop at doodlekev.bigcartel.com Long-time listener of the show, really nice guy and really great artist who does some really cool artwork. So yeah, you know, there's a lot of really great uh, prints and stuff that would make excellent like Christmas gifts as well. So it's a pretty good time of year to get in there. But um, anyway, yeah, go check him out. He's, he's excellent. So, Bawley Rectory. Yeah, interesting one. I, I really, really enjoy this story, first and foremost. I, I love it. I was a bit worried about it because I knew that it was going to be... I mean, this is such a, a mucky story in a way. It's been sort of ploughed over by so many people with agendas and who wanted, who are coming at it trying to prove their side or, or, or you know, be the sceptical side. Either way, that, that they're coming at it with an agenda and then that, that that all these books are written with say with with agendas in mind and and there's people that are out to sort of poo poo on Harry Price and there's people who are there to sort of be skeptical of the ghosts and then you've got the other side of it where they're coming out and saying like you know Harry Price everything he said is true and everything that happened in the house is true and and it's it gets really mucky it's really hard to kind of filter through to what's actually just the facts of this case and this story um but it but it is a really interesting story. I tell you, the, the, one of the first things that, that blew my mind when I was researching it was when I found, was it, was it Henry Ball's death certificate um, and found out that he had died of tertiary syphilis. Um, that that blew, like, blew my mind because, I, I mean, I found his death certificate and it, it, it said that on it. And that, to me, my instant thought was, right, well, this explains an awful lot. 
um, because you know he was said to be quite eccentric and 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 uh, you know have make up all these sort of like stories and that about ghosts and seeing ghosts and that. But if he had been suffering from syphilis, there's there's absolutely you know the very first thing that as soon as I saw the death certificate, I was like, well, yeah, I mean, you're, he's going to have seen a deterioration in his mental faculties. There, he's going to have at least had a, a period of some sort of dementia and, um, and whatnot. So. Um, yeah, I mean that that explained a lot. But I think when you really dig down in the story and you get back to that, I really enjoy actually that part of it. As much as I'm really skeptical about it, and clearly, say like my angle on this Bawley Rectory thing is that it's probably like almost all made up. But I still really enjoy it um, because those early days, like pr- prior to Harry Price's involvement, I really enjoy those stories because I really love the way if you when you trace it back like a family tree like of ownership and, and who lived there. When you're tracing it back through the years, you can see how the story progressed in, in much the same way that all sort of folklore and, and oral tales do progress as they go up through the generations. You know, like they start off, you know, what starts off as a, a, a nun and a, and a monk ends up with like a full-on backstory by like 10, 20 years down the line. Um, and, and that's exactly, you know, it progresses exactly as sort of folk stories do progress. And, and, I, and I really enjoyed that part of it. And, and I enjoyed researching it, that part of it. But I also enjoyed it just as a story because I, I love the way you see it unfold. It's, it's really, really interesting from that perspective. And there's just enough there for a, someone who's coming at this like from quite a sceptical angle to, to go, oh, yeah, OK. I can see how these folk stories evolved, but did they have a nucleus somewhere? You know, did they did they come from somewhere? Because there are a, an awful lot of witnesses, you know, and witness sightings, and and that just feeds that side of your brain that says, yeah, but maybe you never know, right? It just just gives it enough kind of nourishment to go, okay, I'm dead skeptical about all this. I can see the stories progress. I can see how it's like kind of almost oral tradition and oral folklore, but you never know. Oh, but there's an awful lot of people who said they saw this and they're not all crazy. And so I really do like that about that. I think where the Borley story gets really mucky though is of course when Price comes in and and Price is a really difficult character. And, and in his book, I mean, it's infuriating to read because... It's really interesting and, and in a way it's like, wow, he had this opportunity to investigate this house. But then he really screwed it up. The book itself is 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 kind of a mess and he, he goes on and on about being impartial and not wanting to be part of the investigation and getting all these people that were wouldn't ha- would not know the house or the stories. And then he inserts himself again and again into the investigation. And he tells everyone precisely what was going on in the house. And, you know, before they've even set foot in the house, he's telling them of what to expect, essentially. He's, he's basically seeding them. And you, you can't do that. Inst- as soon as you do that, it instantly undermines everything. So it's, it's frustrating. And, it, and, it, and it, the way he contradicts himself constantly, he tells a story that, that these people did a seance and they were told of sp- very specific location of where the nun was buried in the garden and in the very next sentence says that it's impossible to prove well i'm sorry but the grave was 
apparently less than a foot deep. You know, here's an idea, Harry. Go grab a shovel and get your hands dirty, and you can probably prove that in a day. He, of course, he doesn't because he, I suppose, he didn't really want to disprove it or prove it. He just wanted to tell the story of the nun being buried in the garden because it's exciting, right? And it's it's good for his, you know, publicity, which is the side of Harry Price that, on one hand, I, I quite like, but on another, I hate because. You know, I like the fact that Harry Price, sometimes I think people overlook what Harry Price did for spiritualism and and psychical research and that. In that time, you know, he was trying to bring it to uh, and the everyman, you know, like the, the, the average person on the street. And I think to do that, he needed to make it exciting and spicy. But of course, at the same time, you look at it and you go, yeah, but Harry, by doing what you're doing, by, by making it exciting and spicy when there's nothing exciting and spicy there, you're instantly undermining everything, right? Of course, and and, and I, I really like him, but I, he frustrates me as well. And I say his book is, is is a real mess of this kind of contradiction. And and he's constantly calling back to how he's, he's using this scientific method and impartiality. And then he just tosses it all out of the window by using like really heavily emotive language and uncontrolled tests and and then says how they're like the most fantastic evidence and you're like dude you really haven't got a solid grasp on the scientific method here this is difficult um you look at the blue book is a, a perfect example of harry price it's just an art a waste of time to seek all these independent investigators and then give them a book that literally tells them everything so why even bother getting people who didn't know the house and didn't know the situation and were independent when you're going to go ahead and do that that said the blue book is amazing it's hilarious the i love when you're reading it it's like you can kind of see that harry price is trying to come across as really officious and scientific but at the same time writing about stuff that is completely bonkers and it makes this wonderful dichotomy when you're reading it of just like insanity and strict authoritarian scientific views it's it's really quite funny um it's definitely worth a read if you can get hold of it i I mean you can like get hold of like a print uh, um like a a facsimile or copy or something because um yeah it's definitely it's 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 hilarious to read otherwise my opinions on on generally on the story it's halloween in it let's say it's haunted eh? like why not i like i say for me i I feel like i can see this the, the story like having researched the owners of the houses in the way that I did, I could see the way the stories developed. And for me, they, they, they show a, a correlation, like, like you could track them on a graph almost, you know, like, like parallel with the way that every urban legend or folk story grows. So I, I don't believe it. I think it's, I think it's a nonsense that grew up from childhood stories and, perhaps a little bit of eccentricity sort of thrown in there and like over the years it's just developed and developed and then once Harry Price gets involved of course it, it becomes like a, a different monster at that point but that's that's kind of my opinion I don't think anything happened I think largely I think you know almost all of the phenomena I you can you just look at it and you go well that doesn't sound that convincing really that said there there is a part of me that says you know just maybe, just maybe. There's there's so much, there's such a wealth of information 
or you know such a wealth of uh, stories from witnesses i suppose is is the biggest one there you know there's hundreds of witnesses and 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 you think just maybe just maybe one of them is telling the truth and and if just one of them is telling the truth then that's enough right so i, I like that about that it's tantalizing it sort of teases you with that like yeah but what if you know um so I, I that that's where I stand with it. Ninety nine point nine percent skeptical about it all, but you know, what if there's that one, one story, or it it conjures that kind of childlike excitement in me that it that it could be true. Um, but yeah, otherwise that that's that's the ghosts of Forty Rectory, and that's really about that. So next time I shall see you, if you'd like to come to it, will be the live stream on the twenty third. Like I say, if you have a story for that write it in social at darkhistories.com that would be really cool um if you'd like to contact me for any other reason you can do so at contact darkhistories.com you can check out the website which is just darkhistories.com you'll be able to find all sorts there ways that you can contact me ways that you can support the show if you'd like to do that ways that you can interact all sorts the the, the main website basically if you want to know anything about dark histories find us on any other social media go to the website you'll find everything there yeah, thanks very much for listening. I will see you, say, hopefully at the live stream. I'm sure say that will be over on YouTube and I will post about that on the social media and that beforehand. Um, but if not, I'll be back very soon. Take care. Sleep tight.